Major Lindsay in Africa presents Between the Legal Lines, a podcast focused on leading women lawyers who have pushed beyond the boundaries and found success. Welcome to Between the Legal Lines. My name is Andrea Bricka, and I am your host today. This podcast is a series of monthly interviews where we explore how women who happen to also be both executives and lawyers navigate the boundaries placed upon them due to their roles and their demographic. These women have found success despite those sometimes very narrowly drawn lines that govern what is acceptable and what is not. And each month we hear a new story from a different woman about what that's like. Joining me today is Trevina Bird, currently Vice President, General Counsel, and Board Secretary of American University. Welcome, Trevina. Please tell us who you are and about your current role. Thank you so much, Andrea. And I just want to take a moment to also thank everyone at Major Lindsay in Africa who are involved in putting this program together because I think it creates a really great space for women to be able to talk about some really important issues that are unique to the folks who do what we do. So I'm delighted to be here. And to tell you a little bit more about what I do and who I am, I am, as you mentioned, uh, a lawyer for a university who's had a very long career working in higher education. And I think the thing that makes me really unique is that although I now have the title of Vice President and General Counsel at American University, I spent years at other institutions, both large and small, public and private, and I also had roles that were outside of the legal office in those institutions. That's sort of unusual because a lot of times people who are interested in being in-house counsel at universities uh, tend to come from private practice and other kinds of spaces, and I'm kind of homegrown. I find that that's um, been a unique aspect of my background that has served me really, really well because I have had jobs teaching As a faculty member, I have been involved with academic advising. I have dealt with student affairs issues, and I was even a recruiter. So I was an assistant admissions officer for a few years. And all those things really deeply informed my practice as a higher education attorney because I understand the academic landscape and the kinds of things that are really important to my clients on campuses. Wonderful. Can you tell us a little bit more about your current role and how you got there? Oh, yes. So my current role at American is not just as the chief legal officer, but also as the board secretary. So I'm a corporate secretary who deals directly also with the trustees and supporting their governance function. And the job is probably the most interesting job I think you can have in the law because you deal with every single subject area possible, almost. I mean, there's probably some exceptions. But our professional association is the National Association of College and University Attorneys. I um, serve on the board for that fine organization. And we often joke that being a campus attorney is dealing with every legal issue from A to Z, from aviation to zoning. And that is not an exaggeration. I've absolutely dealt with aviation issues and zoning issues. And, uh, you know, universities are um, places where there's... um, you know, obviously the same kinds of issues that you have in other corporate settings, such as employment, contract, um, sometimes real estate, uh, intellectual property issues, and so on. But we have 
a whole layer of additional elements that are unique to the higher education space. We deal with students, we deal with athletics, Title IX, faculty concerns, tenure. Um, you know, it's like being more like a city attorney um, than it is like being a um, in-house corporate attorney because we have a police department, we have a health center. So I, in some ways, preside over all the legal issues that affect a small village or in some cases, a larger community like um, a town because we have a lot of those same kinds of concerns that we have to figure out and manage. Um, I have a staff of five other attorneys that I work with. And um, when our phone rings, we have no idea what's going to happen on the other end of it. And that's what makes the job really challenging, but also really fun and fulfilling. So you just touched on the fact that it's a little different being a GC in higher education compared to being a corporate GC. How does that provide challenges or opportunities based on gender and in particular as a woman of color? Yes. Well, I think that one of the things that all of us as women in an executive role um, in you know, in, in situations where we have to um, show leadership, have to adjust to is the reality that um, we have to think about adjusting um, and bringing all the full range of our skills to problem solving. And what I mean by that is that I personally think that women have a unique ability quite often to um, step back from a problem and think about the different frames that we bring to solve the problem, to view the problem, to diagnose the issue, and to think about potential solutions. And um, sometimes leveraging um, the intellectual skills, the softer skills, um, you know, the relational skills. Uh, again, not that women have a corner in the market on relational skills or anything like that, but I think because we um, have, we're challenged in different ways to, in order to be successful and effective that we um, don't get a pass. And we sometimes have to bring to bear all the different elements of our personalities and our training. Um, and, and, and we come at it in a, in a much more comprehensive way. So uh, I think that's really helpful in the higher education um, uh, environment because you have to uh, recognize that the corporate environment, sometimes um, you can issue a policy and people know they're required to follow it because they could be fired if they don't. When a big portion of your workforce are faculty members who have tenure, who have a faculty manual that consists of the terms and conditions of their employment that they have dominion over and they wrote and voted on. And, you know, you, you can't just kind of mandate things. Um, this is a collaborative environment. Uh, it's a shared governance environment where you have to think about how to move an agenda forward when you're concerned about compliance issues and things like that, which, you know, most faculty members are, you know, brilliant people who have much better things to do than to talk to you about following, you know, the rules that are inconsistent with what they think is in the best interest of their research. So you have to figure out a way to engage, build relationships and help them understand because they're incredibly intelligent people who do understand when you take the time to explain it, but you have to understand their language. And you have to be very, very patient because you can't just, you know, again, issue an edict and expect uh, folks to get on the bandwagon. So, um, you know, it's the same with students. I think a perfect, a perfect example and illustration of that is what we've observed in the past several weeks with college and university reopenings as a result of the pandemic, because 
there was this expectation that students needed to follow rules in order to maintain health and safety standards. That was the only way that we were going to be able to achieve the goals of having face-to-face instruction in these kinds of settings for a residential uh, campus. And, you know, students are going to do what students are going to do. And so it's a natural tension that you have to constantly juggle because your constituencies and your stakeholders, the folks you work with every day, don't always do what you say. Um, And not that they do in a corporate environment either. But uh, again, you have to have a whole range of skills to bring to bear. And I think women, you know, we, we in terms of our, our personal roles and our professional roles, we tap into different parts of ourselves that I think makes um, our leadership really special in this environment. You mentioned the pandemic. What have you learned about leadership from the COVID crisis? Great, great question. Um, you know, I think that across industries, uh Everyone is learning new things about leadership, and we're continuing to learn as we um, enter into the eighth and ninth and tenth month of this. And uh, you know, the the biggest lessons I've learned, I think, is the value of trust in a leadership team. Um, and this goes back maybe to the last question about um, again tapping into all the parts of your personality and recognizing you have to um, connect with people on a human level to be supportive and encouraging because things are really challenging right now. Emotionally and personally, folks are being uh, challenged in how they're managing to teach their kids at home and still be able to show up for work on the Zoom. And you you have to be very flexible and you have, so you have to be nimble. Um, in my last several months, advising the university on how we were going to implement our plan for reopening We've had to make abrupt changes because of things that were external to the university that were unpredicted that we had to adjust to. We've had to um, understand, accommodate, and, and prepare for the fact that our faculty, um, some, many would feel um, concerned about coming back and teaching face-to-face younger people when they um, may be in a more vulnerable group in terms of the exposure to the virus. Um, you know, I had to think about um, you know issues of, of race and racism on top of the pandemic issues and how that was the the additional crisis you know we've always talked on our campus about how we're dealing with three crises at once and trying to make really difficult decisions amidst all these things because in addition to the the trajectory of the virus um, not being predictable we have a lot of things going on with regard to race in this country and that creates um, a huge emotional um, uh, kind of burden that um, leaders of color also have to carry with them into work and figure out how to manage and balance while they do their jobs and remain professional. So, you know, and then of course the economic challenges because we, um, you know, we're tuition dependent and we, you know, are teaching our students online now and we have lost housing revenue. So we're not unique. Many, many colleges and universities, if not all, are dealing with largely the same challenges. So we, we are working through it. But I liken it to um, the challenge of trying to fly a plane while you're building it and you know because we don't know exactly what this new environment is about so we're trying to figure out what pieces are relevant and important as we assemble the plane but we have to keep things going we have decisions we have to make Um, but this is even more challenging than the typical um, you know leadership um, you know obstacles that you face because we're unsure what the destination even is. We know where we'd like to go, but we don't know what kind of um, things we're going to experience on the journey. It's really um, a lot of um, 
factors that are not predictable. So that that's what I've learned about leadership is just really being able to learn how to develop those trusts, engage, because you have to um, be creative and, you know, problem solving and brainstorming in these spaces. When you feel like you can trust your your teammates, then you can, you know, be creative and throw out some ideas that you might not have otherwise thrown out, which I've done my share. <laughs> and thankfully, things have gone really well. So, um, you know, you have to be brave and bold. And I think that's those are the main lessons I've learned. So turning to your career, has there been any one person that's been particularly helpful in your career? I have been incredibly fortunate to have had the most amazing, supportive women, specifically women bosses, who have expressed a huge interest in me personally and professionally, wanting um, my, my growth and development in terms of my career and have been tremendous resources for me. And I, I'm becoming increasingly more aware about how that's not such a normal thing for people to experience. And, and I feel bad about that because I felt very fortunate. And, and one in particular, of course, was um, Nancy Pringle, who was the general counsel, vice president and general counsel at Ithaca College, and um, someone I worked with for 14 years and, and taught me everything I know about how to be a good campus lawyer. And she's someone who is much beloved at that university or that, that at that college. And what's interesting is that in now, since I've left Ithaca College, I was her associate general counsel and I worked there 14 years. And when I left Ithaca College, I thought that's how I thought that was normal. I thought everybody loved the lawyers. The lawyers were best friends with everybody. <laughs> and then I got to these other places where, you know, it was a little bit more typical that the lawyers were viewed with a little bit more suspicion and skepticism because you're the person who's going to come in here and tell me I can't do something that I really want to do. And so um, what's been my mission and the greatest lesson that Nancy ever taught me was about how to go into these new spaces and to just, again, engage people where they are and be respectful of what they do and to learn about and understand what they do because they love to talk about their work. It's very important to them um, in, in an academic setting. And then they'll start to trust you because you'll start to explain to them how what you're trying to do from the legal standpoint is really to support their efforts. Um, I want to be able to um, provide the foundation upon which they can do their research and thrive. I want to make sure that the students are in a safe space and able to have a range of experiences that enhance the overall quality of their degree. And I really want to make sure that at the end of the day, any decisions that the university makes, that it can be readily defended because it was done in a way that was consistent with our core values, our policies and practices and so forth. So it takes time, but you know, every place I've been, I think I've been able to really move the needle on that and recast the legal office as a place that is a partnership for the other units of the university rather than an obstacle. What would you say, if anything, do you wish you were freer to say or do at work? And if so, why can't you? Again, this is probably what, another reason why I really like working in academia is because you probably get away with a little bit more than you might in other places. I don't know what it's like really to not be able to work at a place where you talk about race, where you talk about religion, where you talk about protest, where you talk about all the subjects that maybe are not the subjects that you're supposed to discuss in, in other um, professional settings. And it's because it's our bread and butter. This is what our students are engaged in. It's what our faculty are engaged in. And it creates a, a culture 
that then affects everyone professionally. So I'm really happy that, you know, I can raise certain issues and questions. And, um, and those are ones that tend to be, um, tend to be really, you know, to be, to be considered and, and respected. But I have to say that it's largely because I'm at this place in my career, you know, and I think that there's been points earlier on before I, I, I reach, you know, cabinet level, as we, we call it in the universities setting as a vice president, where it would have been a little more restrictive, you know, where um, I've had opinions that I had to kind of temper a little bit because, um, you know, I had to recognize that, you know, I'm not the final decision maker. I'm only supposed to give advice. Um, so it's not so much because of being a woman or being a black person, although the opinion may be partially motivated by the fact that I'm a woman or a black person, black woman specifically, I may have a certain opinion about how things should go down. Um, but it's because of my role as a lawyer, I have to give advice. I'm not the decision maker. And for many years, I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to balance my role as the person who gives advice, but who doesn't make the decision. And my advice has to be legal advice. It can't be my personal opinion about how things should be. Although those, it's a gray. I mean, those things, it's hard to always know where that line is. Um, but I've always thought it was incredibly unfair for a lawyer to come into a conversation in these spaces and, you know, use their kind of authority as the, the legal person or the compliance person to weigh in on an issue um, because people pay attention to it. If the lawyer says we shouldn't do this, we really shouldn't do this. But And, and I, I, I use that superpower carefully because, um, you know, I know it's not fair and I want to be taken seriously. When something does matter from a legal standpoint, I want it to be taken seriously. So if I have a question, a question, concern or something I want folks to consider, what 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 slows me down might be, again, because it's not so much a legal opinion, but it might be um, related to something that I think is more of a personal opinion. Um, but at any time when I have a really strong opinion about, you know, equity or um, or a, um, a legal concern or, or anything like that, I, I probably, maybe to my detriment, but I, I have tended to be the person who will speak up more often than not. Um, and that's just probably my personality. Expanding on that a little bit, what's been stronger during your career, the restraints you placed on yourself or the restrictions placed on you by other people? Oh gosh, you know, I hate that question. <laughs> I hate that question. I'm going to tell you why. Because on the one hand, I think about all the things I put, I put on myself that I know a lot of other women and Black women specifically carry around all the time because of societal conditioning. And I can talk about that. But then I think, well, I don't want to let anybody off the hook for the stuff that they've imposed who, that has been um, a barrier to me being able to do things that I want to do, even in subtle ways, even in ways they may not have been aware they were doing it. And, and so, you know, I have to say, I have to answer that question by saying, you know, they, they, they've both been a equal presence, I think, throughout my life and career. Um, and they've kind of, in some ways, kind of fed off each other. And so I, I will never forget the moment. It was almost like a light bulb had gone off. I was probably in my mid-30s. And I can remember I was um, working on a case with outside counsel and they were all white men and they were discussing 
um, we were all discussing uh, legal strategy for this case. We had some decisions we had to make. And I can remember um, weighing in and, and, and having some thoughts about, you know, a particular approach we should take. And I remember the response I got was, wow, that's really smart. Yeah, we should do that. And the way that, that the response was framed and, and the fact that I really enjoyed working with these guys and respected them so much as lawyers, they were really smart and they were excellent attorneys. And the way that they reacted to me, like I had taught them something and that we should go with what I thought of. I mean, it was just this moment where I suddenly realized I'm just as smart as these guys. Why have I gone around for the last however many years since I got out of law school, not being the first one to speak, always waiting for others to speak, always thinking that they have this figured out and I need to catch up. And, you know, just, it was such a moment. And that point forward, I always walked into every room making the assumption that I knew just as much. I was just as smart, if not smarter, and that I had just as much to contribute. And so in those ways, I think that I had really, um, you know, suffered from imposter syndrome, the way that, you know, that's been characterized recently as 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 a thing. Um, yeah, I absolutely thought I was somehow this, this, this person who like this punk kid who got in and like, you know, snuck past the guard (laughs) and one of these days I'm going to get found out, you know? So I've shaken loose from that quite a bit over the past, um, couple of decades. And that's been really, really, really important to me. Um, but I do think over the years, the opposite is also true that I have worked with people who have, um, glossed over a suggestion that I've made or something that I've said that, you know, a few minutes later, a man said it and it, and it had a different, you know, it landed differently. It had a different impact. People were responsive. Um, you know, the the last story I will tell you is I was, um, in a situation where I was, um, supervising a division where, uh, I'm, I'm trying to say, try to make sure I characterize the story carefully because I don't want to embarrass anyone, but, I was uh, supervising a division where there were several staff members who ultimately reported to me and there was a few layers down. And there was an individual who was hired who basically reported to someone who reported to someone who reported to me. So this was someone who was a few levels down and this was someone who was hired to do something. And we'll just say it was in human resources. And that's actually, although I have to be um, aware of a range of different um, subject areas in the law because of what I do. Uh, I would say that my depth of expertise is in a few different areas and that and one is employment law. So um, that's something I do understand. And that's why I was responsible for supervising human resources at one point. So this individual is hired. Um, I knew who he was, but had not met him yet. And then I was engaging with this individual at um, an event on campus and I realized who he was. And I said, oh, wonderful to meet you. I'm, I'm the vice president, Trevina Bird, and introduced myself and welcome. And, and he was um, chatting and we got on the topic of FLSA and that's when he tried to explain to me what the Fair Labor Standards Act was. Now, this young man um, you know, knew I was the vice president and the general counsel and an employment law expert. And yet he felt that I needed an explanation of the Fair Labor Standards Act. And I just, I didn't know whether to laugh or, or cry or what, but it was just one of those moments where it was just a reminder, no matter how high you get, that those things still happen. And, um, you know, it was a moment and, you know, over time I found an opportunity to educate that young man about how he should speak to people. And I feel that that's an important role I should have now as I've gotten more advanced in my career. 
So data continues to show a gender pay gap for most legal roles, particularly the GC role. Do you have any thoughts on how we can close that gap going forward and how we get more women into the GC seat? The challenges that women have in advocating for themselves is incredible. And I have really, really tried hard to serve as a resource for women who are um, in the job market, who are um, embarking on a process to negotiate a contract or a salary. And I just really have a whole list of things that I really, really want them to do before they enter into that. And they have to um, be prepared. They have to always, always um, advocate for themselves, ask for more than they think they're entitled to. They have to, they have to, some, a friend of mine, I just recently said this to her and she laughed. I said, you have to ask for more than you're entitled, that you think you're entitled to, to the point where you're embarrassed about it. And, and she laughed and I said, I'm not kidding. Cause that's what the men do. And we just don't as women often, I'm, again, I'm generalizing cause there's many women who've gotten really good at this and I've learned from them. And I'm just trying to pass it on because um, I think that's one of the biggest challenges. It's, it's not necessarily the challenge, nor is it the um, primary challenge because um, racism and sexism and all those factors are really the, the bigger issues. And I'll get to that. But I just wanted to start with that because for me, um, it was linked to the earlier story that I told about being um, made aware of how much value I brought to a situation and it clicked once that clicks and then, you know, you have to act on it and you have to advocate for what you're entitled to. But before the click, pretend that there's a click, like fake it till you make it. Like you just got to go there. And, um, and, and I always would say to folks, you know, the worst thing that can happen is that they say, no, we can't do that. No, we can't meet those particular terms. They're not going to say, no, we think you're so rude for even asking that we're withdrawing the job offer. Like that tends to not be, <laughs> that tends to not necessarily be the um, uh, outcome to that, but you just got to try. So I, um, I have had a lot of conversations about that, but I think the bigger issue of course, is the challenges that are brought to bear by societal conditioning and the um, undervaluation of women's work. I mean, those are the bigger things because um, I, I do wholeheartedly believe that, and this is true every place I've ever worked because it's just subterranean, is that I, we can bring the same uh, credentials and range of experience as someone who does not look like us, and yet it's taken more seriously, it's given more value. Um, we see this all the time in a lot of settings. And so um, I think it also frames the reaction of, you know, when you make your ask. And so that's why you always have to try and you have to, and you have to go there, but you know, you, you, you um, will still sometimes get that pushback. So, you know, we only, we can only control what we can control. Um, but the advice I have for people is at the end of the day, you have to be at a place where you feel valued. Sometimes um, how you're valued isn't always about compensation. And that's, of course, an important value to have when you work in higher education <laughs> because, you know, the salaries aren't necessarily as big as when you're in other, other you know, kinds of industries. Um, so you have to find other ways to, to um, be fulfilled and, 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 to get, uh, and to be compensated. But, um, but you still are entitled to be at the table and to be paid the same as everyone else who's contributing regardless of gender or race. 
So I think that's about the best I can do with that one because it's such a complicated issue that continues to be a challenge and it's affecting women of color even worse. In closing, what advice would you offer to other ambitious women about workplace behavior? And how is that the same or different from advice that you think would be helpful to women of color? I think that um, the theme of what I've been discussing in this conversation keeps kind of circling back to the need to build relationships, the need to be, um, the, the need to the need to connect because every place I've ever been, I've tried to find my tribe, I guess. And I've tried to find those who could help me um, manage the space I was in at that moment, as well as think about how to get to the next level, not in an exploitive kind of way. I, I mean it in a way of, you know, building, um, kind of like a community, like a cabinet, you know, like they talk about how, you, how each, each person should have their own kitchen cabinet or something to each woman. When you think about the, the ways that you um, consult with your certain group of people about like next steps, how, how should I develop myself? What, what should be an experience I have to get from A to Z? I have tried really, really hard to um, find connections that were meaningful with people both inside my immediate workspace and, and, and external to that, but, you know, within the industry especially if it was something that I was really interested in. And I mean, make connections that were meaningful and authentic, not just for the sake of um, having someone that I know in a certain position, because I find that they're just so incredibly helpful for um, helping me to process things, helping me to um, be reminded of what I bring to bear in a situation that maybe I'm, I'm doubting myself or second guessing. You know, so for example, I'll never forget going to one of my women resources, um, not necessarily all lawyers, they could be other leaders in other spaces that can give you another perspective and saying, you know, I have this opportunity. I'm not sure if I should take it. I don't know if I'm ready. And I'll never forget this person saying to me, every single opportunity that presents itself, that you're evaluating whether to take it, if it doesn't scare you, then you know, it's not the right one for you. And you should be a little terrified before you, before you accept a new opportunity because if it's just kind of a continuation of the same thing and it's too comfortable for you then you're not going to grow. And I thought that that was really important. So I think that's true for all of us as women is that, is that we sometimes, unfortunately, underestimate the value of having other women in our network in a way that is truly, truly authentic and, um, and helps to just support us through these trying times when we're processing things at work. But I also think that as women of color, it's even more, more of, of an important goal. And, and I do think that it's important that we don't just um, focus on only relying on people who look like us, of course, but there is so much value in being able to relate and engage. And that has really helped me a lot in my career. And um, as a result, I've tried really hard to do that for others. And, and be a resource to them because I know how, how helpful that, that is. Um, you know, in the last several months, there's been, as you know, um, kind of a reckoning on issues related to race and gender, if you go all the way back to the hashtag MeToo movement, which I think continues. And one of the things that we know is that 
women and women of color have dealt with way more at work than anyone ever wanted to talk about before. And so that has been, you know, a real blessing to be able to have real conversations about how to address these concerns in ways that are far more constructive. And when we talk about it, there are power in numbers, and that's how we're seeing meaningful change. Trevina, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been Between the Legal Lines. You have just heard from Trevina Bird, Vice President, General Counsel, and Board Secretary of American University. I am Andrea Bricka from Major Lindsay in Africa. Thank you for listening. Join us next month for a new story from another woman successfully operating between the legal lines. If you have a story you would like to share, please contact me at abricca at mlaglobal.com. Thank you. Discover how Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com. Dot com.